0: Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you. And we recognize that there are so many times where maybe we don't show it or say it or express it as we should. But in this moment, Father, we do more than just sing it. We do more than just offer these words into the air. But with our hearts, we tell you we love you. And we're grateful that you give us the space and the time, the grace and the mercy to receive your love that we can return it. And that's ultimately what we ask of you today is to help us to fall more deeply in love with you whatever that looks like, whatever it is that we behold, whatever burden that we carry, whatever opportunities lay before us, may they awaken us to the depths of your love and stir our own affections for you. And now, blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us to hear them to read, to mark, to learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit in the world without end. Amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Man, beautiful morning of worship. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Sarah and the rest of the team for uh, offering us uh, the opportunity to truly come together and sing some incredible truths and to worship together. I uh, hope you all are doing well today, church. How is everyone this morning? Y'all doing well? Good, 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 good. Uh, we got a lot to cover, and so we're gonna, we're gonna get right down to it, and I wanna begin with a little bit of a poll. I like to do this from time to time, a little bit of a survey and overview. I'm curious, I wanna know what is or what was your favorite subject in school, okay? Now before you just shout one out, I'm gonna actually narrow that down because we're gonna eliminate all the people that are like, lunch, lunch, recess, that's my favorite subject. We all know lunch and recess is the favorite subject. I'm gonna narrow it down to the core four subjects, okay? We're talking about math, uh, reading slash English, science and history, okay? So real quick, how many of you would say math is your favorite subject in school? All right, got some athletes in here. Good deal. Good to see you all. Glad that you made it today. How about reading in English? Okay, maybe about equal, I guess. Science? Anybody? Science? Okay, more or less. Okay. What about history? All right, decent. It seems to be pretty well divided, and and so I don't know. Maybe you, some of you raise your hand more than once, but you can kind of tell everybody has their own aptitudes, their own preferences. For me, uh, if I was taking that poll, you know, I, I could navigate math. I could manage my way through science. I enjoyed English and reading, especially when it came to writing. The reading was a little bit more hit and miss. Cliff Notes really got me through a good chunk of high school. Uh, but really, the one that brought me to life was history. I've always loved history, uh, and, and I really just came to life in those certain classes. I found them interesting and intriguing. Uh, But what I've often discovered in a lot of informal conversations, and part of the reason why I wanted to just do a quick survey, is that sometimes history has this reputation of being boring, people's eyes kind of gloss over, you don't get really as engaged with it, and and it doesn't tend to be people's favorite subjects. I see that we've got a fair amount of historians in here today, so I I feel good about that. Uh, But at the same time, what you've also seen recently in a lot of different research is that our proficiency in understanding history as a culture has diminished. It's, it's in decline. Uh, there's an article in Forbes magazine that I came across, and it was written in, in 2020. I can't remember exactly when in 2020, but I'm pretty sure that the results that they were referring to were pre-pandemic. So we, we know that as a result of the pandemic, so much education was lost. It's not Uh, uh, surprising to see maybe a decline in certain test scores, but I believe this particular article predates that, and they were seeing a decline in the areas of history. And the article kinda gave some suggestions as to why this was the case. There's obviously a lot of emphasis on math and reading with all the standardized testing that's out there, and even the nature of the sort of reading that you do on those standardized tests. uh, It's often small selections, a few paragraphs, testing comprehension and things along those lines, so that throughout the year, teachers kind of model that same sort of reading. And so you don't even really have the same motivation to do these more comprehensive, holistic, expanded readings that might lend itself towards history. And so people are increasingly um, lacking in just a basic understanding of history. Now I had brought a video uh, from, from Jimmy Kimmel's uh, talk show where he goes out on the street and tests people's awareness and knowledge of history. He compares, he wants to see, what do you know more? Do you know more about Star Wars or U.S. history? You can guess how that video goes. Uh, I, for the sake of time, I decided, you know what, we're going to scrap it because we just got to get to it. But it's, it's pretty evident uh, and brings to light that a lot of folks struggle with really understanding history. Where I, I want to start today is why it's important. Um, one of the, the more recognizable quotes that you probably think of with the subject of history is, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Right, And and so that does capture a certain level of why it's important. But I want to add a few other quotes that, to me, uh, not only elevate the importance of understanding history, but also give us a little bit of a focus of what we want to talk about today because we are going to take somewhat of a historical overview uh, today. And so the first quote I'm going to offer to you, I've actually put it up on the screen today, is going to come from Abraham Lincoln. Here's what he says. Human nature will not change in any future great national trial compared with the men of this, we shall have as weak and as strong, as silly and as wise, as bad and as good. So let us therefore study the incidents in this as philosophy to learn wisdom from, and none of them is wrongs to be avenged. So I love this quote, obviously Lincoln coming from and representing an incredibly historic moment in our nation's history with the Civil War and all the conflict that that emerges there, he, he talks about, listen, when you look back on this, you're gonna see elements of human nature. Any future trial that this nation endures, you're gonna have the same thing. You're gonna have men that are weak and strong, silly and wise, right? all these different things. And so look at this, not as an, a wrong that needs to be avenged, but something that can give you wisdom. And I love that. Now the, the phrase that I really wanna uh, kinda of highlight for us there in Lincoln's quote is human nature. Right, that a lot of what we discover in studying history is human nature. And this is something that the great philosopher David Hume highlighted as well. And this is the second quote for us this morning. Here's what David Hume has to say. Mankind are so much the same in all times and places that history informs us of nothing new or strange in this particular. Its chief use is only to discover the constant and universal principles of human nature. Right? So those two quotes to me, um, give us an idea of why history is important. That at the end of the day, when you study it well and you explore it, it reveals human nature, right? You see these common threads, these these common ideals, these common responses. And when you study it in that way, you are able to extract wisdom or principles that you can apply to your present and future realities. Right? That's that's my goal for us today, right? Then when we take this, this look at history, we're able to discover certain things about human nature that then allows us to find a certain wisdom, certain principles that we can apply to our present and future realities. And now, the subject of our history lesson today is prayer. Right? Now, prayer is the subject that we Uh, started last week as as part of kind of this new series. We're calling this series The Greater Work, borrowing from that quote from Oswald Chambers, that prayer does not equip us for the greater work, it is the greater work. And what we want to accomplish is to take some time through this discussion on prayer over the next few weeks and really have it kind of let us, kind of gain some habits, some understanding of how we can begin to pray so that we can live more courageously. So last week, we just talked about the foundational understanding of prayer, right? That the Lord is near to those who call on him, all who call on him in truth, and that prayer is ultimately this moment where we are in the presence of the sacred and the divine, right, it reveals this need, this innate need for that relationship. Well, today, we're gonna look at the history, kind of the ancient practices and modern practices of prayer with an anticipation that next week, we're gonna talk about the different types of prayer, a lot of different types that are referenced in the scripture, so that after these two weeks, we can begin to formulate what are some really healthy habits of prayer, not just for us to consider for our own lives, but for us as a church, and, and then we'll begin to practice those. That's gonna kinda be the progression that we take through the course of the series. So today, we wanna take a look at the historical perspective of prayer, and, and I will tell you, it will be brief, uh, not necessarily in duration of sermon length but brief in terms of history okay uh, it will be selective because there's just so much that you could really say on this subject so any historians out there you're going to have to give me grace i know there's a lot that's going to be left out and a lot of summary that's taken place there but we're going to take kind of a scope of, of these historical practices with the intent that it will reveal certain things about human nature so that we can gain wisdom and principles to apply to our present and future realities, okay? So, that being said, where do you begin? Well, how about we start with the very first prayer, okay? Uh, Have you ever asked yourself, what is the first prayer that was prayed in the Bible? Uh, To be honest, I had never asked myself that question until this week. Uh, Let me me qualify how you might answer it. Uh, We're not talking about necessarily the moments where God interacts with man, right, where God speaks to man, Um, and and he initiates the conversation, but kind of that first mankind calling upon the Lord, right, reaching out to the Lord. Where did that first occur? Well, as I started wrestling with that this week, I discovered that a common answer is in Genesis four. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis four. This is gonna be where we start our discussion today. Now, uh, again, we're gonna zoom through a lot of different things, but I wanted to start here with this first prayer because I do believe it gives us a really important foundational understanding of what prayer is really kind of designed to do and and a huge part of what shapes the ancient and modern practices of prayer. Okay, so so here we are in Genesis four, and before I read the verses we're gonna look at today, just a quick overview, just to remember kind of where we are at this point in the story. Uh, Adam and Eve have sinned, Uh, God has extended the curse to the serpent, to man and to woman, he's banished them from the garden. Cain and Abel have been born, uh, Cain has killed Abel, and then we see the response of God to Cain and what's happened to Cain and his family line. And now we're gonna pick it up in verse 25 and 26, okay? Starting in verse 25, it says, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son named, and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. And here it is. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That's really interesting, right? Uh, It it doesn't seem to necessarily necessarily fit with this verse 25 that is kind of highlighting the lineage of Adam and Eve, but all of a sudden, right there in Genesis four, what many scholars would argue is the first kind of indication of prayer, people calling on the name of the Lord, and the question becomes, why? Right. Well, uh, the, the article that I came across that I really uh, appreciated some of the insights that were provided was an article written by uh, Gary Miller. This is on the Gospel Coalition, and it, and it offers, uh, I think Gary Miller is uh, president or professor at Queensland Theological College, and, and he makes some really important observations. One of the first ones is, is that whenever you see the phrase, at this time, uh, that's referenced there, it indicates kind of a significant marker, especially at this point in Genesis. And so the question becomes, well, what's significant? about this moment that prompts people to begin to call on the name of the Lord. And as you look at verse 25, it's hard to identify anything of, of note when it relates to the birth of Seth and then subsequently the birth of Enosh. And so, Why all of a sudden was this the trigger for people to start calling on the name of the Lord? What Gary Miller points out is he ties it back to Genesis 3.15. Now you don't need to turn there, but just as a quick summary, Genesis 3.15 is a really important verse that many scholars refer back to as one of the first messianic messianic gospel promises, right? Because God is speaking the curse to the serpent and he's saying, okay, you're gonna slither on the ground. You're gonna crawl on your belly. There's gonna be enmity between you and the woman and her offspring and you, and then in verse 15 it says, and in her seed, her son, her offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And it's, it's this promise that gives insight to there will be this son of, of the woman who will ultimately crush the serpent. Right, so, so that becomes, for many people, kind of one of the first indicators of a, of a messianic promise, this idea that the serpent, the adversary, will be destroyed. But imagine being Adam and Eve in that moment. If you hear this curse, if you understand it, all of a sudden you're looking towards it. And, and Eve gives birth to Cain, gives birth to Abel, gives birth to Seth, gives birth to Enosh, and still no sign of this son who's gonna come and crush the head of the serpent. And so what do people begin to do? They cry out. I love the way that Gary Miller puts a quote together to articulate this. He says, this is the first address to God after the fall. And it is a cry to God to act by fulfilling his promises. The announcement of Genesis 315 has brought gospel hope to life, which in turn leads God's people to ask God to act. The gospel gives birth to gospel-shaped prayer. As we look at prayers throughout the Bible, it becomes increasingly apparent that they are dominated by this single concern to see God act to fulfill his promises as he advances his plan of redemption in our world. And that's why I wanted to draw us first to Genesis 4, that it helps set kind of this fundamental idea that so much of what is driving our prayer and our prayer practices throughout history is this desire for us to call upon the name of the Lord for him to act and fulfill his promises. You said you were gonna do this, God, now please come and do it. And you see that thread throughout the course of history. And so it's a really important foundational concept for us to consider that that prayer is really this attempt for us to call out and ask God to fulfill these promises. But then the natural question is, well, how do we do that? How do we know what God has promised? And that question and that desire is a huge part of what shapes these ancient practices. So now, let's do a survey of history, okay? We'll start with the Old Testament. And and the idea here is, let's look at the Old Testament and say, what are some of the practices of prayer that shaped Judaic in in the life of Israel, right? Their their Judaic prayer practices, what what helped kind of become these pillars and these anchors for their practices of prayer? There are numerous things I could say about that but I'm gonna highlight at least three for us this, mo- this morning. Okay? The first is what is known as the Shema, right? And I believe even today, Jews are expected to regularly pray the Shema, and, and they are instructed to pray uh, with a certain rhythm morning and evening. And the Shema is a prayer that finds its origins in Deuteronomy 6. Again, you don't have to turn there, we'll just summarize it. Deuteronomy 6, it's referred to as the Hera Shema, because the first word in Deuteronomy 6 is here, and the Hebrew word for here is Shema, and, and when you look at Deuteronomy 6, it's an instrumental passage that has largely shaped not just Judaic life, but even Christian life, because there in Deuteronomy 6, you hear the verse say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Right? And then you continue to see the context around Deuteronomy 6, where they talk about God bringing them up out of, out of Egypt, where they talk about God, lead us into the promised land. It has these elements of God, do what you have promised. But that passage, that scripture, became foundational to the Judaic prayer life. They recited that scripture repeatedly throughout the day, numerous times, praying the Shema. That's, that's number one in the Old Testament. The second one is probably the most obvious when you have the subject of prayer uh, and what largely influenced the prayer life of the Jews, and that would be the Psalms. Right, the Psalms of David, which are often seen not just as songs, but actual prayers. I mean, it's, it should not escape our notice, our attention that right there in the middle of the Bible, the Lord has given us 150 prayers. Right, if, if you wanna question the significance of prayer, like that's a great level of evidence to say, no, this is highly important. God has given us 150 prayers right there in the middle of scripture. The Psalms of David, Right, became incredibly important. Number one, because they were of David, and David was this, this chief figure in Judaic history. Right? He was the pinnacle of the Judaic kingdom. And so when he provides these psalms, they become integrated into the life of Judaism, especially in temple worship. Right? So, so David doesn't build the temple, but his son Solomon builds the temple, And now all of a sudden you have these ways to to really uh, take the sacrificial system, the feast, and all these different things that were already a part of their rhythm, you bring in the Psalms and it becomes an ongoing part of the people's worship. And that temple and those Psalms became a fixture of their prayer life. Now to make this point, again, you don't have to turn there, but let me read to you, I believe it comes from 1 Kings chapter eight. This is Solomon's prayer for the dedication of the temple. He says, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way, you have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. Right, so you see the same thread of promises, asking God to fulfill his promises, thanking God for the promises that have been fulfilled, and then this prayer of dedication continues as Solomon evokes all these different situations that they can anticipate as a people, in famine, in war, for their sin, when foreigners come to the temple because they've heard of the name of God, that when they pray, God would hear from heaven and respond and forgive. So the temple, and the Psalms in particular, become a hugely important critical ingredient of ancient prayer life, especially for the Jews. The third one for the Old Testament would be the exile. Right? So the exile uh, shifts everything because now the kingdom falls, the temple is destroyed, and, and the Jews are scattered. You have the diaspora, right? they're, they're living as exiles. And, and so now what happens is that prayer and the importance of prayer, though it was already important, continues to stay elevated because it's all they have left. Now they, they turn to face the temple, wherever it was based on their location, right, as a symbol of wanting to, to be back with it. And they begin to develop these, these places of prayer that ultimately become known as synagogues where they will continue in these repetitious practices of coming together reciting psalms honoring these feasts these tabernacles worshiping as god had taught them saying the shema all these different things and that becomes the foundation of the judaic prayer life as we move into the time of jesus okay so now we'll keep our journey through history moving right so you get to the new testament and and obviously one of the most influential components of the new testament prayer life is the influence of judaism all these things are in place. Going to the temple to pray, reciting the scriptures, reciting the psalms, that was a huge part of what shaped the early church's prayer life. And you see that as you read throughout scriptures. But now there's a whole another, wildly important ingredient that's thrown in, and that would be Jesus, right? Jesus comes in, and he not only follows these examples and kind of upholds the same sort of prayer practices that you see from Judaic life, but now he teaches on it as well. And when you read through the New Testament, there are a lot of different passages that give us an insight to how the early church responded to his teachings. Uh, I think there are more than 25 records of Jesus actually praying. I think Paul mentions prayer around 41 times. But if we were going to narrow down one particular element of Jesus' influence on prayer practices, what would it be? The Lord's Prayer. Right, that moment where the disciples say, How should we pray? And the Lord responds. Now you see two different references to it. One in Matthew, one in Luke. I'm gonna put the one in Matthew up on the screen today. And we'll just remind ourselves of how Jesus responded with the Lord's prayer. In Matthew chapter six. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, as we learned it, tradition began to add, For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. But you see, Jesus offered this instruction on prayer, and that Lord's Prayer becomes instrumental in shaping the prayer life of the church and prayer practices of the church. So now we have our foundation of Old Testament. New Testament. Now we're gonna journey very quickly into the early church. When you get to the early church, a lot of these elements are now in play, right? You, you now have the kind of central focus of worship actually really starting around the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Uh, that was typically what people were doing when they were gathering together to worship. But you look at the book of Acts, you look at all these other things, you can see that their lives were devoted to prayer and they were consistently praying. They were going to the synagogues to pray, you see a lot of these same traces at play. Well, what ends up happening in the early church that's really remarkable is that you have this development of structure. Though Jesus taught very little about the structure of the church, you start to see it come into play. And and you start to see some key doctrinal truths take shape as well. You start to see the emergence of creeds and things like that so that people can guard against heretical teachings and things along those lines. And in so doing, you also see kind of these rhythms in these ancient practices of prayer. Right? And, and one of the first ways that you see it start to develop is through the didache. Now that is uh, the Greek word for teaching, and it's associated with the Apostolic Fathers. The Apostolic Fathers are kind of the next generation of church leaders, kind of the second generation of Christians. Uh, Clement of Rome, St. Barnabas, there, there's several others, and the authors of the didache were anonymous. But this was an important early, early, early church document that taught certain practices. And in the D.K., it says that Christians and believers should pray the Lord's Prayer at least two to three times a day. And so now you're seeing some of those similar practices, right? Here's here's the Lord's Prayer. Here's a rhythm in which you should associate and how you should pray in the morning and in the evening. In fact, by second century, uh, second century Christians were believed to want to or had the practice of praying in the morning and the evening, and then mid-morning, noon, and afternoon. So at least five times a day they were expected to pray, and now the Lord's Prayer was a huge part of it as well. Well, then the next major event that takes place in the course of history that begins to shape it, keep in mind, a lot of that is developing while uh, every uh, element of the church is under the threat of persecution. Then all of a sudden, Constantine becomes a Christian. Uh, Christianity kind of becomes the official language of Rome, or religion of Rome. And a lot of these things become more commonplace. But then, Rome falls in the 5th century. right? Late 400s, Rome falls. And when Rome falls, you have this fertile ground for all these new kingdoms to develop. All these new little areas and provinces. And that creates kind of a, a fertile environment for monasticism and eventually the the papacy to develop in the Catholic Church as we often begin to think of it today, so of those two we're going to focus in on monasticism. Okay, so monasticism is really credited to uh, Benedict. Okay, and he was born around 480 A.D. in the town of Nursia, and when Benedict is 20 years old, he decides he wants to be a hermit. Life goals, okay? Uh, if you're a college student and you're 20 and you're like, hey, I wanna be a hermit, then more power to you. But Benedict decides at 20, I'm gonna go be a hermit. I'm gonna go live in a cave. And he embraces a life of asceticism. Asceticism is the term for extreme self-denial, right? It's, it's a harsh treatment of the body. And the reason he dedicates his life to this is so that he can overcome the temptations and the indulgences of the flesh, And so he goes and lives this like extreme life of self-denial, living in a cave, and and he all of a sudden kind of gets noticed. There's a certain fame and attention that's paid towards Benedict, and people start to go out to where he's living, and he starts to acquire certain followers. And after he acquires a certain amount of followers, they actually establish the first monastery, and they begin to live in a community. Now, when that begins to happen, Benedict has progressed a little bit further to where he says, you know, I don't know that we really need to have such uh, a forceful and harsh approach towards asceticism. We're just gonna have more of a modified understanding of community. Now, it still had strict discipline, but less unnecessary harshness. So for example, uh, the monks in the monasteries that were really sold out on this harsh ascetic ascetic lifestyle would uh, say that we're gonna go live in the desert and we're going to only have salt and bread and water, okay? Benedict's like, hey, we're still going to eat, okay? We're going to have two meals a day. We're going to take turns preparing. We're going to live simply, but we're going to have a blanket and a pillow, okay? So he kind of brings it back in with a little bit more modification, but, but still with the strict devotion, and he develops the Benedictine rule and, and your understanding as a monk living in a monastery was to be fully obedient to the Benedictine rule. And, and that had all these different ideas of how you could live, what responsibilities and chores you were gonna have, but at the center focus of the Benedictine rule was what? Prayer. And when you're in a monastery, you were expected to pray eight times a day. And this was extracted from Psalm 119. I think it was Psalm 119, 162. I think it's 162 that says seven times a day, I praise thee. And then Psalm one eighteen. I think it's 64, says in the middle of the night, I praise thee. And so monks would dedicate eight times a day, seven during the day and once in the middle of the night towards prayer. And at the heart of those prayers were the Psalms. To the extent that monks would recite the Psalms so often, so frequently, that they had the entire book of Psalms memorized. Take that in. How different would your life be if you had the entire book of Psalms memorized? Let me say it another way. How much more courageously might you live if you had the entire book of Psalms memorized? But connect these ancient practices of the Old Testament with the New Testament. The Psalms were central. And so the Benedictine rule uh, becomes widely spread. Gregory, who eventually becomes the Pope. Augustine, several others take this Benedictine rule. And it kind of becomes standardized across a lot of church at that point in time. Okay, so now you have monasticism that establishes a lot of it. So now let's keep moving very quickly as we've got two more little elements that I wanna cover. So now you get to uh, Catholicism, okay? And, and one central element of Catholicism that I wanna highlight for us today is the rosary, okay? There's more than a billion Catholics in the world, and they still have rosaries and pray these prayers. So you talk about ancient and modern practices. This, this practice is really significant. Let me explain to you how it developed, okay? So, so the monks were praying these 150 psalms, and they were known to be these like, ex- shining examples of extreme devotion to the Lord. And so people living around these communities, they wanted to emulate that devotion, but they didn't have access to the psalms. This is before the printing press, right? This is before you have your little smart device and can bring up whatever translation you want on your phone. They didn't have the psalms, but they wanted to emulate that devotion. And so what did they turn to? They turned to the Lord's Prayer. And so, because the, the monks and the and the people living in the monastery could recite 150 psalms, they would often pray the Lord's prayer 50, 100, 150 times. Now, here's what happened: when you were in the monastery and you were a monk and you were trying to recite the Lord's prayer, you had, or not recite the Lord's prayer, you'd recite the psalms. You had to keep track. And so, the way that they would keep track is they would have these pebbles. And they would throw these pebbles in a pouch. They'd throw them in a can. They would throw them in there. And sometimes they would recite all 150 psalms in one day. Sometimes it would be a week. But you would look into this can and you'd figure out, where am I? You'd count 25 pebbles. Okay, I need to start with psalm number 26. And you'd keep going. And so they'd use these pebbles. Well, when people decided, well, I don't have the psalms. I'm just gonna recite the Lord's Prayer. They had these strings with knots, 150 knots in them. And they would just count the knots as they would say the Lord's Prayer. And then over time, Those knots turned into little pieces of wood and then ultimately into beads and you had a rosary. Now, let's be really clear. This is to me is interesting because we're talking about human nature. Uh, The the idea of a rosary, a string with beads to help guide you in prayer is not confined to Catholicism. You see similar practices in Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. Human nature, right, and so, so now over time, um, the rosary has a lot of different ways that it's used. In fact, I tried to make note of a few of them because I'm not Catholic. Surprising, I know, to all of you. Um, but, but I, I wanted to, to try to take a look at it. And I'll oftentimes when you go through your rosary, you might recite the Our Fathers, the Hail Marys, the Glory Be, Fatima Prayer, Hail Holy Queen, the Apostles' Creed. There are all these different ways that you can use a rosary to guide different sorts of prayers. But one particular prayer was the Rosary of the Blessed Virgin, where you would go around the string three different times and ultimately say 150 Hail Marys. Again, there's that number, right? And, and so you have this practice that now emerges within Catholicism, and you can see how it traces or is attached to so much overlap within monasticism, right? That it's, it's praying scripture, right? Even a Hail Mary is, is extracting scripture, at least the first part of the Hail Mary, right? It's, it's quoting different scriptures in the Bible. And so you see how even that was shaped by some of these ancient practices. Let me give you one more, and then we'll, we'll give us some principles and wisdom and lessons to take from it all. Okay, so now we get closer to the Reformation. Reformation starts in 1517, and most scholars, I think, would estimate that it ends around 1555. That kind of is the period of the Reformation. So much happens in the Reformation, right, that influences uh, Protestantism, and it has influenced us today. There are great figures that we could learn from, like Calvin, and Luther, and Zwingli, and on and on and on we could go. Uh, but I wanted to try to focus our efforts, I had to be selective again. And when thinking about the subject of prayer, the natural place that I turned to was the Book of Common Prayer, right? which is in the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Now you may sit there and go, well now why did you choose the Book of Common Prayer? Well, the reality is, is that if you have ever pledged to be married to someone till death do us part, or mourned along the words of earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you've been influenced by the Book of Common Prayer. Right, the Book of Common Prayer has had a significant amount of influence throughout the course of Protestant churches and English-speaking churches in a lot of different ways. So it was developed by Archbishop uh, Cranmer, and Cranmer's idea here was I want to preserve a lot of these traditions that you see from the ancient practices in Catholicism, so much so that a lot of medieval Catholics, when this was put together, I think he introduced it to the church around 1549. When he brings it to the, to the Church of England, most medieval Catholics would look at the actual elements of worship and have no fault with it. The, the two significant changes that Cranmer makes in the Book of Common Prayer is number one, he de-emphasizes the veneration of the saints. Right, saints are are examples to be followed, they are not people to be prayed to. Right, that's one major change in the Book of Common Prayer. The other change is the emphasis on the Holy Word, understanding the scripture, so much so that he has it to where you're going to hear the gospel every time you come to a service, that you're gonna be able to read through the scriptures in their entirety over a certain amount of time. He develops this church calendar, he has all these different elements. And part of the idea was that you could walk into any Anglican church, any church of England, anywhere, and and have a familiarity, an understanding of where they are and what they're gonna be teaching. So you look at the Book of Common Prayer, and it's actually fairly complex. There's a lot of different things to it, but it's also incredibly comprehensive. Uh, You could find instructions on how to do almost any service if you were gathering for daily prayer, a weekly service, a special service like Ash Wednesday or Advent or something along those lines. Uh, services for ordination. I mean, you name it, they've got instructions for it. It includes a catechism. It includes uh, teaching on doctrine. It includes separate prayers of thanksgiving and all these different elements. And you know what else is in there? The Psalms. 25% of the book of common prayer is the entire Psalms because they incorporate the Psalms into so much of their service, so much of their liturgy. They just had it right there. And so you look at this entire history, be it brief and selective, and you see these common trends, don't you? Don't we begin to learn a little bit about human nature? We see all these different ancient and modern practices that have shaped how the church has called upon the name of the Lord so that he would do what he has promised. And so what are those lessons What are those principles that we could apply to our present and future realities? Well, there's four that I wanna share with you this morning. The first one that hits me as I look at this overview of history would be scripted, scripted prayers. It's really interesting when you think about it because I wanna talk about this um, understanding that there's something very powerful about spontaneous prayers that are often kind of couched as this idea of praying freely. And and that is biblical, right? We just preached on that not too long ago when we were going through Romans 8. And we talked about how the Spirit intercedes on our behalf and gives us wordless groans and we don't even know what to pray for. And we talked about one of the great ways to begin your prayer time is to come before the Father and say, Lord, teach me how to pray. Absolutely, the Bible instructs, condones, and encourages us to pray in freedom by following the Spirit. So don't lose that. But what can happen is sometimes we can be resistant towards scripted prayers. And we almost kind of cut them out of our life. We'll look at something like the Book of Common Prayer or a rosary or things along those lines. We'll say, well, that's too scripted. And we just disregard it altogether. Uh, there is an article uh, that I found that was written by uh a reverend knoll from the Anglican church. He was talking about the value of the book of common prayer. And I thought this was a really interesting statement to kind of speak to this reaction sometimes against prayers that are scripted. He says, one common objection to the Anglican prayer is that said prayers are inherently rigid and mechanical, lacking spontaneity and freedom of the spirit. And this has often been true of Anglicans. He admits it, it's true. He references such as the pastor whose tombstone was praised for him having preached the gospel for 40 years without enthusiasm. I thought that was pretty good. But then he, 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 re, he responds, he says, but it's equally true that much spontaneous prayer and praise is just as dull. As said, prayers are often more about the pray-er than about God and his word. I thought that was a really worthwhile quote to consider. We Think about a scripted prayer. And, and part of what it can achieve for us is focus, right? That there is that inevitable reality that if we are left to our own devices and we cut out this certain principle in our life where we only pray in the spirit, only pray freely, and we ignore this rich history of prayers, that over time and in certain moments we become maybe a little too self-focused, God give me this, help me with this, and we focus more on ourselves rather than on God and his holy word. There's a place for scripted prayers. Maybe you caught it as I prayed for us this morning and offered up a prayer written from the book of Common Prayer today. And as I found it, just the beauty of it and the way it focuses our time to hear from God's word. So think about how do we incorporate that mixture, not one or the other, but a mixture of scripted and prayers that are marked with freedom. Second, observation scripture right that a lot of times the scripted prayers that the church has prayed have been scripture anchored in god's word whether it's the shema whether it's the psalms whether it's the lord's prayer and how important that is to our prayer lives how often do you pray god's word and think about that for a moment how how often Do you take the time to make sure God's word is a part of what you are praying? You think about even what we talked about several weeks ago when I said, hey, maybe we come down and we say, Lord, teach me how to pray. Could it be that at times God's saying, I have? It's right here. And the value of what scripture does to focus our hearts on who he is and what he has promised. There's some wisdom in applying praying through scripture in our life. Third one rhythm. You see the rhythm that has always been a part of the church's prayer practices, even from the very beginning with the Judaic principles of praying in the morning and the evening that began to become such a fixture of the prayer life of the early church and expanded upon to where it reaches this crescendo almost of eight times a day with monastics and, and all these different elements where we see this rhythm, expectations to have certain triggers in your life, like a meal or a certain ceremony to make sure that you pray, but, but without question that there is a rhythm to your prayer life, And here's why I think that's incredibly important, because rhythm is essential for healthy relationship, right? And you can see that in almost any other relationship that you have, right? The the most healthy relationships in your life and the most important relationships in your life are gonna have rhythm, right? Like I have a rhythm to the relationship I have with my kids. I see them in the morning, I take them to school, I pick them up from school, we have dinner together, we have a routine before bed, and then we repeat. I have a rhythm with my wife. We do all those same things I just mentioned together. Then when the kids are asleep, we carve out an extended amount of time so that she and I can connect in a very intentional way every night. We have date nights. We have triggers of when we're going to pray for one another and with one another. You can expand it beyond your family. You look at your Uh, working relationships here at the church. I have a rhythm with the staff. We meet as a staff collectively every week. I meet individually with folks on Tuesdays. We have annual sort of points of emphasis that we focus in on at this point in the time of year. There is a rhythm to our discussions. You have the same thing in your family, in your workplace, with your friends. What's your rhythm with the Lord? See, the problem is, is that when we don't have rhythm, relationships suffer, don't they? Think about the people in your life that you don't have a rhythm to. How do those interactions go? Man, it's so good to see. I hadn't seen you in so long. We should get together sometime. And then you don't, because there's no rhythm. Which one is more like your prayer life? It is hardwired into us. There's a human nature that responds to rhythm. Maybe that's exactly the takeaway for you today is I need to create this rhythm morning, noon, night, whatever it is to commune and to pray with my Lord. Here's the last one, repetition. There's value to repetition. Now again, sometimes much like scripted, this is kind of a similar point, uh, we, we are resistant at times to a repetitive prayer because we feel like that repetition can almost become a roadblock to us understanding and engaging. And I'll admit, at times, it can be. For example, in my life, uh, growing up, we said the same prayer before every meal. For food, for friends, for home in heaven, for all has to mercy given, we give you thanks O God, amen. Right, and I can tell you, for years, I had no idea what we were praying for. Right, and like, that's not a joke. I remember thinking like, what is thou hast? What is that word? I don't know what that means. Like, I, I literally did not know what I was praying for, because it was so repetitive. It wasn't just scripted, it was repetitive, and and I didn't fully engage with it, it was just something we did, and we all know that there is an element that when we have repetitive prayers, we can tune out, we can just go through the motions, and it doesn't feel like it's connecting. And so what we do, as a result, is we kind of guard against that, and we overcompensate, and we categorize anything that's repetitive as being too ritualistic, too religious, and there's just no real relationship to it, and we carve it out altogether. But here's the value of repetition. At one point, and I don't exactly remember when. I remember actually thinking about what I was praying, and it clicked. And I was like, wow, that's actually a really good prayer for food, for the friends, for my home, for heaven. All that I have because of what his mercy has given, I give you thanks, O God. And it clicked. And when it clicked, I realized I had been given an incredible treasure. That prayer, that truth is embedded deep, deep within, I will not forget it. And that is the power of repetition, right? That yes, it can be an obstacle, but it buries things deep within your soul, within your heart, and imagine those moments when because of that repetition, when you hit crisis, you hit opportunity, you hit praise, you hit sorrow, when all of a sudden something wells up within you and you know it by heart because it's been said over and over and over again. These to me are really valuable ways for us to take a certain level of wisdom and certain principles into our lives. To think about scripted prayers merged with the freedom to pray as the Spirit leads. To think about praying through Scripture, praying with rhythm, praying with repetition. Now, I wanna close us by giving you just kind of an example of what I think that looks like in my own life, and then we'll, we'll conclude our time together because I wanna try to at least paint a picture. I'm not suggesting that you go home and like find a rosary and like go buy a copy of the Book of Common Prayer and all these different, like you can, you know, I mean, whatever. Part of what I wanna share with you is how this is human nature. That as, as prayer became a priority in my life as a husband and as a father, I've seen these things emerge, sometimes intentionally, but oftentimes unintentionally. Right, like, like there is a rhythm to how we pray as a family. We pray every morning before my kids go to school. We pray before every meal together. We pray every night before they go to bed. And oftentimes those prayers are scripted. Not as if I sat down and wrote it out one day, but because of the rhythm, we found ourselves praying for the same things. Repeatedly. And in that scripted prayer is often kind of infused with an area of freedom, too, where we, once we've kind of said the familiar part, we'll infuse some things that maybe are germane to our specific situation or what we're currently facing. There's still freedom that's mixed with the scripted. We'll talk about the scripture, not surprisingly, a psalm. I've shared this with you before. Before my kids leave for school every day, I tell them, this is the day the Lord has made, and their response is, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. And we repeat these things over and over and over again. These prayers that I pray over my kids and with my wife, I know that there are numerous times that they gloss out, you know, kind of eyes gloss over. They're thinking about something else. But I also know that over time, they're having those truths spoken over them time and time and time again. They are loved by God and by their mom and their dad and their brother and sister. They're called to love others. And those truths are going to be buried deep in their hearts that they won't be able to forget. So I don't know what it looks like for you, but when we prioritize it, we foster it, the human nature, the way that we were created, these elements begin to rise to the surface. And what we discover is the beauty of what God has promised. And that's how I want us to end. I want us to spend some time drawing from these practices here, being mindful of what God has promised. And we're going to do that with the Lord's Prayer. Here in a moment, we're going to pray it together. I've already read to you how we'll do it, just in case you grew up saying trespasses versus trespass again. We're going debtors, okay, just so you know. And I don't want to single you out when you're doing it, but we're going to pray together. And here's what I want you thinking of when we do. Brothers and sisters have done this for thousands of years. Our Lord has instructed us to pray this way. And there is value in praying the scripture, there is value in praying something that is scripted, there is value in making it a rhythm to your life and repeating it to one another. Because when you look within the Lord's Prayer, what do you see, church? You see what he's promised. God has assured us his name is holy. He has promised us his kingdom will come. His will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. He has promised to provide for you whatever you need, as you need it. He has promised to forgive you called us to forgive others and he's promised us deliverance from evil and temptation and we'll join with tradition and we'll declare that final line as well mindful of these promises that his truly is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever and let us let that promise be what guides this wisdom and these principles and our own lives as we seek to also pray courageously. So bow your heads, close your eyes, and recognize that this is a sacred moment, that it is a sacred prayer, and that we are stepping into a tradition of thousands of years that has shaped the church. And let us pray together this morning. Amen and amen.